All right. We back. Hannah remembers there's an introduction to be done. So welcome back to True Crime Trine. This is the podcast where the planets align. Three friends talk about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we can fit in this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Boom. That's at the end. But this is episode 15. Meredith is going to tell us a bummer of a story. Yeah, it's sad. Wah wah. Yeah. This week, I am going to take you to Southeast Tennessee. This is a hometown case for my cousins, Crystal and Steven. Oh, hi. Do they listen? Yes. Okay, perfect. Crystal suggested this case a a while back because it's their hometown based out of mainly Athens, Tennessee, where they grew up. So I'm hoping I do this one justice. If I don't, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Let us know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this is a story of the tragedy in Tin Can Holler. For those of you who don't know what a holler is, it is a dip or a depression in the land, also known as a hollow. Oh, but I call it a holler. yeah, holler. Which makes me think of Ichabod Crane and Sleepy Hollow. But maybe if we cover creepy, weird, oh my god, fictional stories Halloween at some point, time. that'd be I really know. good. Actually, I love yeah. it. Yeah, but there is a book that I finished, and I'm Yay! really super proud of myself because I do not ever have time to read, but I did it. So, yay. And it wasn't even that long. No, it really wasn't. And the nice thing for me, because I'm super blind, is that it was a little bit larger print than most books. Awesome. (laughs) But not like the children's book size. Yeah. yeah. It was good. But like I said, I just am really proud of myself for being able to have the time to actually read a book because I just am so busy in normal everyday life. So, Meredith does so much for this podcast oh my gosh yes and i have a six-year-old so <laughs> yeah she does so much for her family too sarah and i are <laughs> we're just grad students. not exactly single or grad students and we don't have a family i mean i yeah, have but a you family guys bring it every week so but this story like i said is the tragedy in tin can holler the book is named tragedy in tin can holler it's by i'm gonna say rosetta maori sure there are places where it's Rosita, which I can see. Oh, okay. And then I also have read where she's referred to as Rosie. So for the purposes of this story, I'm going to go with Rosie, but her name is Rosetta Maori. Can and- I time out for one second? Mm-hmm. I finished this beer, and so I was going to take the empty one out and keep the koozie, but instead I threw the koozie away. And kept the empty bottles. I had to go get the cozy. Oh, no. I'm definitely opening another one. (laughs) Okay. So the majority of the story about this case I got from the book. Um, I did a little bit of rabbit hole searching to kind of fill in some other details and some other questions and some other 
you know, weird sidetracks that I went down, but the majority of the story is from the book. This case is saturated with poverty, with domestic violence, with hate, with racism, with sexual abuse, mental illness, child abuse, and murder. What a serious doozy. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. a doozy in every way. But the story is also filled with love, community, charity, resilience, and eventually forgiveness. Okay. Pros and cons. Mm Mm-hmm. So to start, Rosie Mowry is the second youngest child in the Mowry family, and she wanted to better understand her family history and the events that led to the tragic death of her mother. She began to research and was able to uncover some, some of the truths about her family, as well as some unconfirmed rumors. Okay. Hmm. And there's parts of the story that you're like, eh, I don't know. But... She did a research. There's also a documentary that I watched about it that I believe came out in 2009. I had to kind of dig to get it, but I was able to find it and watch it. But it's basically just in line with the book. So the main part of the story is the murder of Eliza Mae Robinson Mowry by her husband, Signoist Randolph Mowry, or Sig. Let's go with Sig. He went by. Yeah. I know. But to start, I want to take you back a few generations to give you some background into the life of Sig Maori. In no way does his childhood justify his actions, but it is very, very enlightening. Okay. So we're going to go back to 1823. That's back. I know. (laughs) His great, great, no, just his great, great grandfather, George Washington Stims, and his great-grandmother, Caldonia Lawson Sims. I really like the name Caldonia. Mm-hmm. I think a ship is probably a better place to name it, but Caldonia is a very nice name. Yeah. And they resided in Miggs County, Tennessee, and they were loggers, owners of a local sawmill, and hog farmers. They were a very private and recluse family that was kind of feared by the local Ooh. community. And then Tyree Houston was the sixth of ten children from George and Caldonia. Sorry, Caldonia. I know. Ouch. That's a lot of kids. Ouch, indeed. In the 1800s? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Tyree is Sig's grandfather. So Tyree and his wife, Mary Jane. Father 20, oh. Anyway. Mary Jane. Oh, did I? What did I say? You said Mary Jane. I said 420. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> Bad. Cut it's it. It's late. Don't cut We're it. We're drinking. Cut it. Don't cut it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Tyree and Mary Jane were married, and they were given 12 acres of property by Tyree's father. Tyree worked with his family in the logging business and then also at the sawmill business. And he also farmed hogs on his property. Mary Jane suffered many, many health issues. She was a very sickly woman. It's suggested in the book that maybe she had some sort of cancer or something. It just, oh, back in that day, yeah. it wasn't really diagnosed. So, ah, bummer. On September 21st of 1886, Mary Jane gave birth to their only child, Grace Victoria Sims. Wow, just one kid? One. In the 1800s? 
Mm-hmm. Very uncommon. But it was because of Mary Jane's health issues right. that yeah. she, they had tried, and she had several miscarriages, and, and Grace was the only child that went full term. Wow. Grace would eventually drop out of school to care for her ailing mother. Okay, yeah, fair. And during this time, her father... Uh-oh. Shifted his focus to his daughter and mm. began to molest and sexually abuse her. No. I guess because his wife was too sick. Yeah. I, I hate it. I know. It's gross. In her late teens, Grace became rebellious and began and drinking shit. moonshine. Yeah. Grace would be arrested for trespassing, public drunkenness, carrying a pistol... Public <laughs> profanity, manufacturing moonshine, and lewdness. Good lord. Imagine if public profanity was still on the books. We're fucking done for. I'd be in prison for the rest of my fucking life. <laughs> but each time Grace was made to pay a fine, so she didn't actually serve any jail time. So she just had to pay a little money. It's kind of like that swear tip jar. Oh my god, right? it's totally like the swear jar. <laughs> But one of my favorite quotes or passages from the book is, quote, On one occasion, she was seen drunk, riding her mule through the city of Decatur, wearing only her gun and holster belt around her waist. That's in quote. Lady Godiva, go. Whoa, girl! Girl, I've been drunk, but not naked on a mule drunk. <laughs> With your gun and holster? I don't even have a gun. I have a steak knife. No holster. <laughs> So, Grace was considered to be a vicious woman with a hateful disposition, rightly so. I can't blame her. Because of her family life. She was callous and fearless, and she did whatever the fuck she wanted. And this was really uncommon for the time. Yeah, I like yeah. this for her a bit, but mm-hmm. I wish it wasn't the result of incest. Exactly. Yeah. And probably other other abuse. Mm-hmm. So Grace had a really, really bad reputation, even at a young age. The book did mention the possibility that Grace may have suffered from hallucinations and schizophrenia, though, again, that was not something that they diagnosed back in the early 1900s. Yeah, no. I can't, yeah, I would imagine that she'd be sent to just an asylum. Yeah. Yeah, and there's nothing to say about schizophrenia back then besides, goodbye. Exactly. So in 1909, Grace, at the age of 23, met and became involved with a married man named J. Marion Mowry. And I did have to look a little bit. His first name was Joseph. Oh, it was just the letter J. Yeah. (laughs) But he went by Marion, which... Okay. Okay. Hmm. You do you. Marion leased the sawmill from the Sims family. And on June 10th, 1910, Grace gave birth to J. Cornelius Mowry, Ooh. who died 11 months later on May 11th of 1911. It was suggested that little Cornelius was the first of several children that Grace would murder. Cornelius. I mean. I like that name. I'm going to mm-hmm. say not a good look. I know. To be a single mother in the early 1900s. With a baby from a married man. Oh, no. It was not good. It's a bad, bad, bad time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
On February 4th of 1912, at the age of 25, Grace gave birth to defoist Maori. Defoist? Defoist. I got us. D-E-F-O-Y-S-T. Defoist. <laughs> nope, that's defoist. how I would say it too. That's what I'm going with. I, it may be pronounced differently. Defoise. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so Marion still lived with his wife and his other children in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is about 30 miles south of Decatur. At the time, it was suggested that Grace sought out wealthy men and then started blackmailing them for money to support herself and her young son. Oh. Okay. Hmm. I guess. I, I have nothing, actually. I mean, yeah. they're, they're wealthy men. They probably have gotten away with worse. I'm going to say yeah. EDU, but... Uh. So Grace met a man named Harry Evans. He was from a wealthy and prominent family who owned and operated Evans and Son Funeral Homes huh. in Athens, Tennessee. Harry owned property next to her mother and father. Harry was very interested in Grace, but did not want to tarnish his family's name by associating himself with her. Okay, mm. Harry, then you don't like her that much. You just want to fuck her, Harry. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. So Grace gave birth to their first son, Reedstrom, on September 27th of 1915. <laughs> Is Reedstrom one word? Uh-huh. Okay. In order to protect Harry's reputation, Grace gave him the Maori last name. But isn't the Maori guy married too? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, he eventually got divorced, but he wouldn't marry Grace. Okay. <laughs> Is he like, wait, this one's mine too? He's like, when did I fuck you in the last nine months? <laughs> So the book indicated that sometime in 1915, Grace's mother passed away. I did find some conflicting information on a genealogy website, which listed her date of death back in 1909. But more often than not, you saw 1915. So we'll, we'll go with that. She lasted a long time. She did, yeah. So Tyree, uh, at the age of 63, transferred the 12 acres that had been gifted to him by his father to Grace. It was suggested that Grace would steal from neighboring farms, and when that was not enough to make ends meet, she began prostituting. Okay. Okay. She would later be arrested for lewdness and running a house of ill fame. Ooh. All right. Brothels is the theme of tonight. Mm-hmm. It is. On March 15th of 1918, Grace gave birth to Harry's second son, Signoist Randolph Maori. Okay, so he's not even a Maori. No. Okay. Yep. Good to know. So, again, to protect Harry's reputation, she gave Sig the Maori last name. Also in 1918, Grace was arrested for violating federal postal laws by using the mail system to promote a scheme. Basically, she had forged Marion Mowry's checks to purchase farm supplies. She was found guilty and sentenced to 18 months in the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri. Tyree was unable to care for Grace's three sons, so Harry helped find foster homes for them. Thanks, Harry. What a nice gesture from a random guy. Well, he's the father I know, but of two of them. I know, but everyone else in town doesn't know that. I think they probably They probably definitely know, actually, yeah. So in June of 1921, Grace returned home to her sons. 
She would become pregnant two more times, but sadly, each infant would die a tragic death. Oh, no. I won't talk about the death of the first child because it's really, really bad. The second child, and this plays into Sig's childhood. The second child was born when Sig was around six years old, and the story is told that Grace made Sig hold the baby underwater until the child stopped breathing. Sig then ran to his neighbor's house screaming, Mama made me kill my baby brother. Oh my god. Wow. That's fucking awful. Mm -hmm. The neighbor's didn't quite know what to do about it, and they didn't really want to be involved with that family, so they just told him to go back home. And when he got back home, the baby was gone. So it is rumored that Grace disposed of the child in a deep hole along Brickell Ridge behind the family farm. This deep, dark hole is rumored to be one of Grace's favorite dumping grounds. Oh, oh. Grace. But, like, to damage your son at that age. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I know. This is going to be the worst thing I've said in a long time, but why couldn't she just do it? I mean, she already had. I know. Why would you you bring your six-year-old into this? Because she's just abusive and... That's a monster. Not nice woman. I guess I don't know what her childhood was like, but I guess what she did learn is that, like, a family doesn't keep you safe. Correct. Yeah. So sometime around 1929, Grace would end up purchasing the 400 acres that was originally owned by her grandfather for $2,700. That seems like nothing. That's like I know, right? $2,700 for 400 acres? Yeah. In wow. 2021, that would be equivalent to $42,500. That's still nothing. Yeah. Okay. Grace would spend the money that she did have on expensive items for her home as opposed to taking care of her three sons. Mm. She would often have DeFoist, Reedstrom, and Sig steal food and chickens from the neighboring farms. Grace also continued to drink her moonshine and also encouraged the three boys to drink from a very, very young age. Oh, they're tender little They're gonna get messed up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, more so than they already are. Like, back hills moonshine. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the yuppie shit you see like, for sale in places. Oh, I mean, like, this is... This is made in a still back in the hills it could where no blind one's gonna you find very it. Easily, and there's yeah. no... Yeah. Yeah. So, like, legit moonshine. <sighs> Grace's father, Tyree, would end up selling the family's sawmill to Harry Evans. Oh. Oh, how convenient. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And this helped to pay off the purchase of the property. So it's not surprising or shocking to learn that Grace was an extremely abusive mother. She was not known to show any sort of love or compassion towards her children. Mm. Mm. So the Great Depression began in 1929, and Miggs County felt the strain of the economic downturn. Grace sent DeFoist and Reedstrom to a neighboring county to obtain jobs and send their money back to her. The boys ended up dropping out of school, and her three boys were known around many counties as the Sims boys. 
and they were thieves and petty criminals. Okay. I mean, yeah. well, they never really got raised, so. Exactly. Yeah. She did not set any sort of good example for them. It sounds like she basically asked them to steal, too. Oh, no, Hannah, you froze for me. Yeah, she's frozen for me, too. Hannah! Drink break? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Oh, she's back. Well, there you are. Okay. I'm back? You're back. You're back. <laughs> Hannah's back. Back, back again. again. <laughs> Hannah's back. Tell your friends. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but here I am. All right. So Sig was arrested for the first time at age of 12 for stealing watermelons from a neighboring farm. Not even that <laughs> nutritious. I know. The worst fruit. Okay, no, I, I, don't think, I don't think that's true at all, but. I don't like watermelon. I'm not a big fan either. Okay, I'll I... be the lone person here supporting watermelons. Taco Bell and watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every fucking thing that's <laughs> everyone hates. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just a cherry gal. Like, that's oh my, my god, I have a cherries fridge full are of cherries super right good. Mm-hmm. They have such a short season, though. And pineapples. Yeah. Ooh, I just had a really good pineapple kombucha. Ooh. Recommend. Oh my god, I think I did too. Um... While we were in Southern California from Trader Joe's? Yeah, I got Trader Joe's. It was very nice. I think it's GT's or something. Good yeah. shit. That sounds good. Sponsor us and my intestines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would drink kombucha every day if it were not expensive. Same. <laughs> so on a side note, um, I want to just add a little bit of happiness where I can uh, in this very sad story. So, and I did actually talk to my mom about this too, because she grew up in the South and she grew up in very poor times. So their flower sack clothing, I don't know if you guys have heard about it, Mm -hmm. but so it is estimated that during the Great Depression, 3.5 million women and children were wearing clothing and using items made from flower sacks. They used to print, oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Are you going to tell about it? Yeah. yeah. So the manufacturing companies like found out about it and they decided to produce flower sacks with really colorful and fun prints and patterns on them so that the moms could make really beautiful clothing for their children. That's actually really sweet from a corporation. Right? right? Like they didn't have to, but no. they took the extra time and money and energy to do that. They definitely didn't have to. That's really nice. And then their stamp or their logo was printed, like, with an ink that would wash out of the clothing. So they didn't have to, like, cut around that. They could just wash it out. God, they could have used it for ads and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wholesome. It is. Time out. Why were they called the Sims Boys? Because Grace. Oh, right, right. Never mind. Name was Sims. Okay. There's mm-hmm. a lot of names. I'm here. Yes. I know there's a lot of names. <laughs> So Harry Evans, the two youngest boys' biological father, would check in on them from time to time, but only seemed to be a peripheral part of their lives. And he was known to them as Uncle Harry. Say uncle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uncles, don't trust them. Yeah. So at the age of 45, Grace began to correspond with men from all over the country in a mail-order bride scheme. I was really hoping you were going to say prison. 
It was said that when these men would come to the farm to meet her, she would poison them. She would steal whatever money they had and then either feed their remains to her hogs or dispose of the bodies in that deep hole on Brickell Ridge. Wow. Because she's a very less well-known Belle Gunness. Yeah. Why don't we know the story? I know. I think probably because it hasn't been proven. Yeah, I guess they... probably why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it was rumored that Grace murdered 25 to 30 Girl, what? men. <laughs> yeah. And her boys would bury their belongings in deep holes around the 412-acre property. Boys, what? Oh, wow. I mean, she's been forcing them to do heinous things all their life, so. That's true, mm-hmm. but, like, Belt Gun is also operated in, like, the, like, 1880s. This is, like, 1930, right? Mm-hmm. But she could still get away with killing 25 people and no one noticed? Yep. Woof. Well, I wouldn't say nobody <laughs> noticed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the neighbors did become suspicious, and the FBI was alerted. Oh, the FBI. Mm-hmm. Because these men were coming from out of state, and the correspondence was through the federal mail system. Okay. So, the FBI's investigation turned up evidence of mail fraud, and that was it. I was like, yeah, sure, what about the murder? Mm, Nope. Okay. My belly just went, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Why? belly. We needed that. Grace was arrested but released on a $1,500 bond. When Grace did not pay that bond, she was arrested and taken to Knoxville County Jail. While in lockup, Grace learned that she had a serious heart issue that could be life-threatening. Grace used a different bond agency to post bail and was released again. During this time, she would start to organize her affairs and she added an indenture to her property deed which conveyed the 412 acres to her boys equally with one condition that they care for her in the lifestyle that she had been accustomed to. <laughs> okay. Pay her medical expenses and her funeral expenses. Wow. Upon her death, the boys would inherit equal portions of the property, and at this time, Grace also informed Reedstrom and Sig that Harry Evans was actually their biological father. Surprise! Hmm. Your uncle is your daddy! I know. But she did ask them to keep the secret as not to tarnish Harry's reputation. Harry's reputation must be fucking gold. It actually was. okay. He was a very successful businessman. He didn't just run the funeral home, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but he was very well respected and just a very, very loved member of his community. Okay. Hmm. So Grace again failed to pay that second bond, and the judge denied her bail, and Grace was eventually sentenced to five years in the Federal Industrial Institution for Women in Alderson, West Virginia. So while Grace was in prison, the boys had to look after the farm and the property. When Sig was 16, he was arrested for housebreaking and larceny. Uh, That's their terms. It's basically breaking and entering. Yeah, housebreaking. Housebreaking. Housebreak your puppy. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) He was committed to the State 
Training and Agricultural School, which was a part of the Bushy Mountain State Prison for Juveniles. Yeah, not really a school. Yeah. He was sentenced to two years. He managed to escape twice. (gasps) The longest he eluded capture was two and a half months, but each time he, he was returned until he completed his sentence. And afterwards, he returned to the farm. <laughs> so both DeFoist and Reedstrom got married. Not to each other. No. <laughs> to, no, no. That wouldn't have surprised me, but mm. no, no. But no. And so Sig was tasked with taking care of the farm and then looking after his grandfather, Tyree. So during this time, Sig would end up meeting Eliza Mae Robinson. She was 14 and Sig was 19. The Robinson family worked on a nearby farm that was owned by... The guy whose name I forgot. His dad. Harry Evans. Harry Evans. He's so hairy. I know. So Sig and Eliza were were good friends and they spent a lot of time together. It did not say or insinuate in any way that they were romantically involved, but they were just like good friends. Okay. So on January 24th of 1938, Grace was granted release from prison due to her growing health issues. And she returned home to her father and her three sons, but she was very, very ill. Around this time, Eliza would confide in Sig that she had gone on a date, had a few beers, and gotten pregnant by a serviceman who was on leave visiting his family. She didn't find out she was pregnant until after he had left. And there was really nothing that was going to happen between her and baby daddy. Damn, that fucking sucks, girl. Yeah. And again, this this is the 1930s. This is not good. No, it's a bad reputation. Mm hmm. So. Eliza did confide in Sig about her pregnancy. She was really ashamed, and she really didn't know what to do. Also, let's say the terrible fucking bad luck of getting pregnant from, like, having Mm -hmm. sex one time. Yeah. Yeah, that's bad. Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) So, what did Sig do? He asked her to marry him. I don't think Sig... I'm gonna like Sig very much longer, but... Mm -mm. Aww. It was a very gentlemanly thing to do. Yeah. So against the advice of her very Christian family, and given her circumstances, Eliza said yes. What did they expect her to do? She was pregnant. I know. Okay. So Sig and Eliza were married on May 8th of 1938, and on October 5th of 1938, Eliza gave birth to their first daughter, Cinderella. Oh, oh my god. My god. Where did that <laughs> name come from? I'm guessing that Eliza probably enjoyed that story. I don't know. They did call her Cindy though, and she is referred to for the rest of the story as as Cindy. Okay. But still wow. I know. And from what I read, Sig accepted Cindy as his own. He was her dad. So he started off good. Mm-hmm. So shortly, well, not really. Okay, he started off. As, as a, I think as a, a dad, he started off good. Okay. 
So shortly after Cindy was born, Sig was arrested with petite larceny is what they call oh, it. Just, tiny, boy, tiny boy. Tiny <laughs> boy. He was sentenced. I know. Petite larceny. He was sentenced to 11 months, but served just over two months. Grace Victoria Sims passed away on June 19th of 1939. And her father, Tyree Houston Sims, died six months later on December 24th of 1939. Her father really lingered. Yeah. Yeah. Defoist, Reedstrom, and Sig placed two liens on the property to secure notes. One was for $237 to pay the Tennessee Motor Company, and the other was for $1,480 to... Harry Evans. Harry. Harry. Harry, how you doing? <laughs> and he keeps popping Harry. up. Harry. So. I'm ready. <laughs> so I was a little surprised that it would be $1,480 back in the, you know, the late 1930s. So I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole for funeral costs. And That's a today lot. Versus yeah. Then. That's, yeah. So, I, the average cost of a funeral in the 1930s was about $350. How many people are they burying at this funeral? I know. <laughs> which would be about $6,800 today, which is it actually for, like, the casket, the service, the flowers. I mean, I get it. But it seems strange that Harry would charge the boys that much. Yeah. But it became clearer as I kept reading further into the chapter. In March of 1940, Harry paid off the Tennessee Motor Company lien and then requested that the property be sold at auction to the highest bidder. Oops. The highest bidder would be... Harry! Uh Yay! And he purchased all 412 acres for $1,999.98. I want to retract my yay. That's cheaper than what she bought it for, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Harry, man, Mm -hmm. is getting everything he wants with no responsibilities. I know. Harry then sold 222 acres for $1,000. And then when Harry's oldest son, Reedstrom, found out, he confronted Harry, and it was assumed that Reedstrom threatened to publicly disclose that Harry was his and Sig's biological father. So Harry deeded 175 of the 200 acres remaining to Reedstrom. <laughs> Reedstrom later sold sold it for $600. Okay, it just gets less and less. I know. And we keep getting further and <laughs> wow. further in time. I know. So now remember, Harry was a very wealthy man. So, in addition to his funeral business, he owned many local farms, the Sims Old Sawmill, a variety of other business. He was said to be extremely generous and well-loved in his community. Except to his sons. Exactly. Okay. For whatever whatever reason, he just could not fully embrace his sons, and he would always remain a peripheral part of their lives and even their children's lives. Harry. I know. As a side note, there is a part of the book that alludes, alludes to the fact that Harry had a dark side and it was not confirmed, 
but some people thought that he may have abused female corpses at his funeral home. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that is... Hannah's face right now. Not where I, <laughs> I was thinking of going, but let's go there. It only mentioned it one time, and there was no other information about it. I am going to bring a corpse abuser to the podcast sooner or later. Okay. So, Harry, good old Harry. Good old Harry. (laughs) He rented the Sims farm to another family after he purchased it, and he offered Sig, Eliza, and little Cindy a shack that he owned in Athens, Tennessee, in an area that is known as Tin Can Holler. Thank you. Another holler. Little did they know that this was the beginning of the end. Oh, God. It should be noted that Uncle Harry lived in a two-story mansion that overlooked the city of Athens. Yeah, and they got a shack. They got a shack. Tin Can Holler was considered the bad part of Athens, (laughs) But from what I read, the people of this community, even though they were living in abject poverty, they were a community of love and charity and togetherness. Unlike Harry. Unlike Harry. So it was clearly evident that the neighbors looked out for each other and they all helped out and pitched in where they could. There was one story about a man in the neighborhood that when he got paid On Fridays, he would stop at a bakery on the way home, and he would purchase all of the pies that the bakery was going to throw out, and then he would bring them back to Tin Can Holler, and they would have pie parties. Oh, that's really nice. I like a pie party. I know. It feels like the community really, you know, they tried to be as helpful to each other as possible because none of them had much of anything. They were all in the same situation. Exactly. And so, and I talked to my mom about this because, again, she, she, you know, she grew up in the South. She was not from a wealthy family. And one of the things she said was that we didn't know we were poor. (laughs) We thought everybody lived like we did, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until she got a little bit older and started to go, you know, over to friends' houses that she realized, fuck. Oh. We're poor. We're real poor. Yeah. Yeah. So. High nights sound great, but. The Maoris lived in one of the only shacks that actually had running water, but they had an outhouse for a bathroom. So while the shack was not much, it was theirs, and Eliza did her best with what they had. And she was known to be a very sweet and loving woman who loved to sing and play guitar. Uncle Harry... Oh, fuck you. ...did... <laughs> I know did add an additional room to the shack as their family grew. Oh, thank you, my liege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so by 1950, Sig and Eliza had five children. Cindy was 12. Balula Lee was six. Billy Ray was four. Barbara Jean was two. And Sheila Ann was seven months old. So Sig had a hard time keeping a job because he was illiterate. He worked various jobs to try to provide for his family while Eliza stayed home to care for the children. Sig would continue with his bad deeds, though, and was arrested several times for theft. In October of 1950, Sig was convicted of housebreaking and larceny. Again. Housebreaking. Not petite? No. (laughs) 
and he was sentenced to two years at Bushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Bushy Mountains. We got it. Mm-hmm. Eliza signed up for welfare. She cleaned houses. She did laundry. She did whatever she could to support those kids. And the community did what they could to help her as well, as did local churches and, and local charity groups. In October 1951, Sig was paroled and was back with his family. By 1954, Sig and Eliza would add two more little girls to give them a total of six. Rosetta, or Rosie, oh. uh, was born in 1952, and then Marcella was born in 1954. And these would be the last children that Eliza and Sig would have. They probably have enough to take care of right now. Oh, yeah. More than enough. More than enough mouths to feed. Yeah. But Eliza did become pregnant a few more times, but Sig would perform at-home abortions to terminate <gasps> her pregnancies. Ooh. And I only bring this terrifying. up because it is applicable later. An at-home abortion, like he beat the shit out of her, or an at-home abortion, like he got up in there? He got up in there. Oh, my God. I wasn't going to talk about the method. Oh, sorry. But... I needed to know. Yeah, it was... Uh, oh, yeah. fucking hell, Sig. You're definitely not a doctor. No, he is not a doctor. So, on the weekends, Sig would often get drunk and hang out with his friends. And this would often lead to Sig committing crimes. Okay. In yeah. June... Of 1954, Sig was arrested again, and he was charged for with... Petite! No. Housebreaking! Okay. Housebreaking! Stop peeing in the house. He can break the houses, man. He, he got uh-huh. it. So, he was charged with housebreaking and larceny in one indictment, and received a sentence of three years. And then he was also indicted for possessing stolen property, and he received a ten-year sentence for Why that get one. more? Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So his term began immediately, and Eliza, again, she did the best she could. She signed up for welfare, she cleaned houses, she did laundry and ironing, trying to make ends meet, and taking care of these six children. The community, again, stepped up to help Eliza. However, in October of 1955, a man from the Department of Public Welfare and a caseworker from the Holston Methodist Home for Children came and removed five of the Maori children. Oh. Cindy was allowed to stay because she was 17. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Uncle Harry was the one who called to report that Eliza was not fit to raise the children. Harry. Harry. You gonna raise them? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I did not think so. So Eliza did not fare well without her children. In two years, she only got to visit with the three oldest children one time. And when Cindy got married and moved out of Tin Holler, Eliza just couldn't bear to live alone in their house. So she packed up and she moved in with her grandparents. Okay. On August 28th of 1957, Sig was paroled after serving three years. His brother, DeFoist got him a job as a long-haul truck driver, and Eliza and Sig moved in with DeFoist for a few months so they could save money in hopes of getting all of their children back. On October 12th of 1957, 
Balula, Billy Ray, Barbara, Rosie, and Marcella were returned to their parents' care. The Maori family lived on Richardson Street in Athens for a, about a year before they were able to return to their home in Tin Can Holler. Times were tough, and Sig started to binge drink. He would also force Eliza to drink with him. Sig would spend his spare time running around with his buddies and gambling. There were times that Sig would spend his whole paycheck before even getting home to his family. Yikes. That's just so sad. Yeah. So this caused a huge strain on their marriage. And Eliza's best friend in Tin Can Holler was a woman named Lizzie. Eliza would often confide her marital troubles to Lizzie as they walked to church And she told Lizzie how he would force her to drink and that he got mean when he was drinking. And I personally know somebody who's like this, that they just get angry when they get drunk. Mm -hmm. And it's really not any fun to be around. No. So if you want fun people to drink with, then... Drink with us. (laughs) Yes. I am a very happy drunk, so... Me too. (laughs) But... Yeah. Certain alcohols make me more prone to crying. Wine. Oh, if you yeah. Wine, if you cry, give me a bottle of wine. Yeah, wine, <laughs> I cry, and then, like, oh gosh, I can't even remember now. I got, like, drunk off something before, and I was just like, what in the world? Why am I so emotional? <laughs> I mean, I don't remember there what it was. was. That time, I'm pretty sure I got roofied that I was very emotional, but. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that happens That'll too. Do it. But, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm an angry drunk. I'm either crying, fun, or asleep. Yeah, I I second that. (laughs) So, Sig, he did not like Lizzie, A, because she was a a confidant of Eliza, but also because she was a black woman. Oh. So, racism ran rampant through these parts, and Sig did become physically abusive to Eliza when he drank, and Eliza did her best to defend herself, so she she would go at it with them. Okay, good girl. So it was not uncommon for the police to be called to their home, and Sig liked to fight when he was drinking, and Eliza was not the only one who experienced his wrath. He would also fight with other members of the community. It never, ever, ever said that he hit any of the children. So there's that, I guess. I'm going to raise my eyebrows to that one. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure about that one. Well, and again, he wasn't home a lot, right? Because he was running around, so. Oh, I guess so, yeah. You know, and it did say that when he wasn't drinking, he was, I mean, he wasn't like a super, super friendly person. He wasn't affectionate, right? Because he didn't grow up in an affectionate environment, but he was a decent person. Okay. Give him a little slack. And so, yeah. In March of 1959, Balula turned 16, and she got Sig to give his consent for her to marry her boyfriend, Randy, and Balula left Tin Can Holler. In late July of 1959, Eliza became gravely ill. Cindy took Eliza to the hospital, where Eliza learned that she had a very serious infection in her uterus. Oh, no. Because of... Oh, no. That. Oh. Yeah. And she needed to have a full hysterectomy. 
Eliza spent several days at the hospital after her surgery and then returned home to recover. She was to stay in bed and be on bed rest for six weeks while she healed. I don't think that happened. Well, Sig forced Barbara the next, you know, Balula left, so Barbara's now the oldest in the house. Mm. uh, Or the oldest girl in the house. And so Sig forced Barbara to kind of cook and clean while Eliza was recovering. The younger children would often visit their neighbors to get food. They kind of just were just going to stay out of the house. So everyone in Tin Can Holler knew the trouble in the Maori home. And a lot of it was because their daughter, Sheila Ann, liked to run around and tell everyone their business. I mean, Sheila Ann has a lot of shit happening. She does, yeah. It just seems like back in that time, like your family secrets. Yeah, you don't. You don't tell anybody about them. I I still feel the same way about my family. I can get super mad at them, but if an outsider gets mad at them, yeah, no bueno. We're dead. Dead to me. (laughs) So on Sunday, August sixteenth of nineteen fifty nine. Sig and the children were out of the house. Eliza decided to lay down and rest because she's still recovering. And later in the afternoon, Sig stormed into the house screaming profanities. Sig. She had tried to sit up, but Sig began to violently beat her. Sig. Oh. I know. He continued to scream and accuse her of running around with a black man. And none of this was I true. don't think she has the time. She's got so, so many all these kids, kids and, and like you're in prison. She has to support him. Like, yeah, she was cleaning for places. She was ironing yeah, clothes was for places. She was so doing laundry, much. and she was, if anything, she was just a very devoted mom, which is very good. At least they had that. So, I know, but none. None of these accusations were true. None of these rumors were true. It was just something that Sig had heard while he was out drinking. And he, it just enraged him. So Sig dragged Eliza out of the house and he threw her into the back of their car. He drove around for hours while Eliza sat in the back bleeding from his attack. Ugh. Sig had started to drive out of town, and Eliza feared that he was taking her to his old family farm. Sig had told her the stories about the deep hole uh, at the top of Brickell Ridge, but she didn't say a word. She was paralyzed with fear. Sig ended up in a ditch, because, again, he was drunk. drunk. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when an older man approached to try to help them, Sig yelled and told him to mind his own goddamn business. All right, fuck you, man. I will. I know. So Sig got the car out of the ditch and he began driving back towards town. As they got back to Tin Can Holler, Sig was completely drunk and he put the car in the ditch again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Sig, you're doing poorly. Mm -hmm. So, and this was right near one of his drinking buddy, Eb Dixon's little shack. So... Sig couldn't get the car out of the ditch, and he told Eliza that he was going to go get some help. Eliza waited for him to leave, and then she climbed out of the car and climbed up an embankment, and she hid. She knew Sig would look for her, but she had hoped to stay hidden long enough for him to sober up. Okay. Sig returned 
with a younger man who helped him get the car out of the ditch. And then when he realized Eliza was gone, he got in the car and just tore off to go find her. So when he was out of sight, Eliza climbed down the embankment and over to Eb's house to get some help. Eb and his friend Glenn, who they also call Coot. Mm-mm. I know. <laughs> Coot was sleeping off his day of drinking, but they were they were both at the home, and Eb did let Eliza come inside. She was battered, she was bloody, her shirt was ripped, and she asked Eb for a pin to, like, kind of pin her shirt back together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she begged Eb to not let Sig inside if he did come in looking for her. I'm surprised she trusted another drinking buddy of her husband's, yeah. like... So, Sig blew through the shanty's front door only 10 minutes later. Sig hit her and drug her out of the house. He continued to hit her and her screams rang through Tin Can Holler. But nobody came to help. God damn it! Dicks. Bunch of dicks. I know. Ugh. Sig struck Eliza with a tire iron, which knocked (gasps) her unconscious. Fuck. And when she fell to the ground, Sig began stomping her lifeless body. Oh, my God. He smashed her face until her forehead (gasps) caved in. Her jaw and her nose were broken in several places, and her eyes had popped out of the sockets. No, no. Good Mm -mm. God. And no one did anything. Sig managed to get home. Fuck you, Eb. I know. And he woke up Billy Ray, who was sleeping, and had him dispose of his bloody clothes in the outhouse. That's not a good place to put them. Yeah. The police arrived. Well, Billy Ray never told anybody about that. But uh, when the police arrived, uh, Sig claimed that it must have been Eb and Coot, because that's where her body was, right? Sig was arrested. Okay. Good. Good. He had on clean clothes, but his fucking socks were still covered in Eliza's blood. All right, yeah, blood. Sig's an idiot. Mm-hmm. Eliza's funeral was held on August 18th of 1959. Uncle Harry made the arrangements. Hundreds God. of people attended. And for some reason, I don't know why, it was decided that an open casket service... Are you fucking no. No, 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 no. Eliza was unrecognizable, and it was actually the embalmer's wife talked to the oldest daughter, Cindy, and apologized oh, to my her God. profusely and said he did the best he, he could. He did. Oh. So he ended up having to reconstruct her face with clay and wires. Oh, my God. And Rosie and Marcella, the two youngest children, they wanted to see their mom. No, that's not your mom anymore. No, it's really not. Oh, my God. For some reason, they allowed it. And so when they peered into the coffin, they both started to scream hysterically and had to be taken out of the funeral home. And this scarred Rosie so badly that she developed a speech impediment from it. Oh, shit. I know. So Sig was arraigned on murder charges on August 21st of 1959. The courtroom was packed. Uncle Harry hired an attorney, L.B. Lawson, to defend Sig. Uncle Harry! can go lick my ass! What the fuck, Uncle Harry? I know. 
So Mason's first motion was to drop the first and second degree murder charges because this was a crime of passion. He said that Sig had (gasps) every right to be mad because Eliza had been running around with another man. Oh my god, that's fucking ridiculous. I'm so mad right now. Mason also insinuated that the reason Eliza was at Eb's house was because (gasps) she was sleeping with both Eb and Coot. She was hiding from Mm -hmm. him. Wait. So did Evan Coot not uh, not actually testify what actually went down? No, they did. But <sighs> this is this is his defense attorney. So Mason asked that the bond be set at $2500, which today would be about 23,000. The judge agreed that there was not enough evidence for first degree murder, but that the evidence did indicate second degree murder. And set the bond at $10,000, which is a, about $92,000, which is still not much. Not enough. But better for than For someone nothing. that does this kind of shit. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's higher than at least what the defense was asking for. So the judge also announced that all of the Maori children would be placed in the care of the welfare department. Not Uncle Harry. No. Fuck that guy. I know. Uncle Harry did not post the bond for Sig because he was still on parole from his previous crimes. Sig's parole officer notified the Board of Pardons, Parole, and Probation, and Sig's parole was rescinded and he was remanded back to Bushy Mountain State Penitentiary. On October 6th of 1959, Sig returned to the court and was indicted by the grand jury and charged with premeditated murder, which meant that he faced the death penalty. Good. Yeah, good. I'm not. Stop wasting fucking tax dollars, too. Get that piece of shit off this planet. You guys are going to be really disappointed. No. Tennessee, what are you doing? On February 8th of 1960, Sig returned to the court for his trial. Sig's attorney attacked the character of all of the witnesses. He attacked Eliza's character and described her as a charlatan running around on her husband with several men. So, of course, she gets to have her face beaten in because that's, you know, the only that's reputable thing that you right? can do. I know. Ugh. Ugh, we should have done my story for last. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it, This is a major bummer, I, you know, but... My cousin Crystal and Steven, this is their hometown murder, so I wanted to... Hi. Hi. I wanted to tell it for them. It's terrible. This is rough. It's fucked up. So, in Mason's closing arguments to the 12 white male jurors... What? Mm -hmm. It was the 50s, right? It was 1960. Well... I was close. Close enough. (laughs) Horseshoes and hand grenades. So Mason said, quote, I don't know how I would feel if I found my wife in a bedroom with another man, and I don't know how I would react. I'm sure you gentlemen (gasps) don't know either. End quote. What a scumbag. Mm Mm-hmm. The jurors did believe the lies about Eliza, and they sentenced Sig to manslaughter for a term of two to ten years. No. Uh, no. Uh, mm-hmm. And remember, for his housebreaking and larceny and possessing, he got a total of 13 years, right? So he's getting two to ten for murder. killing a woman. And not just, like, a brutal yeah. fucking a murder. A brutal murder. Of a woman. 
of a woman, his wife, the mother of his children. Mother fuck. So on August 19th of 1966, Sig was released on parole. He was arrested on January 18th of 1968 for violating his parole for two speeding tickets, two DWIs, uh, three PDs, which I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> Physical dispute I have no idea. or something. I don't know. And then one hit and run. Hit and run? I know. It took him that long to rescind his parole? Uh huh. Jesus. Jesus. On September 12th of 1969, Sig was released from prison again. I said that really weird. But not long. It's really late, guys. I'm trying to I know, I know. It's it's fine. We're good. (laughs) So he completed his parole without further incidents and was completely done with his term as a, or on June 4th of 1970. Sig remarried and lived his life with minimal contact with his children until his death on his 81st birthday, March 15th of 1999. He died of a massive heart attack. What happened to his children? So this is where I'm going to end my story tonight. Okay. There is so much more about the story and the children and the impacts to their lives. The children suffered and they had really difficult lives. It's terrible. I know. It's not good. None of it's good. So for the most part, they were able to break the cycle of violence with their own children But sadly, most of them lived through abusive foster homes, abusive relationships, alcoholism. I mean, it just, it was not good. And fucking Sig just got to live to 1999 like an asshole. Yeah. And sadly, as of today, Balula, Sheila Ann, and Rosetta, or Rosie, are the only surviving Maori children. Cindy passed away in 1988 from cancer. Hmm. Billy Ray passed away in 2007 from an intestinal blockage. Barbara Jean passed away in 2004 from a car accident. And Marcella passed away in 2000 from suicide. Oh, shit. Wow. I know. So I decided not to do astrology for this case because it's just depressing. That's fair. Instead, I wanted to take a, a little bit of time to talk about domestic violence because... Family and domestic violence is a very common problem in the United States and probably all over the Mm -hmm. world, but it does affect an estimated 10 million people per year. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are victims of physical violence by an intimate partner in the United States, and during one year, this equates to more than 10 million men and women. Oh my god. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some sort of physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Yep. Physical? Physical. Jesus fucking Christ. One in five women and one in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in seven women and one in 18 men have experienced uh, stalking victimization during their lifetime in which they felt fearful or believed that someone close to them would harm or kill them. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. And intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime. So this is, this is a really serious issue. That's huge. 
The author of this book, The Tragedy in Tin Can Holler and the Second Youngest of the Maori Children, became an advocate for ending domestic violence. So if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there are support services available. So there's a website called www.thehotline.org. A very interesting feature of this website is that there is a button you can click straight away that will remove it from your browser history. Nice. Mm -hmm. You can call 1-800-799-SAFE, and that's 1-800-799-7233 for domestic violence support. Or you can text 88788 if you need domestic violence support. Okay. Wow. Deep breaths. I know. This was a this was a long one and it was also very 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 sad. I do recommend for people to read Tragedy in Tin Can Holler. We'll put it up on the TCT bookshelf and you can read a little bit more about the lives of the children and the impacts that their mother's death had on them and it was severe. So it is it's eye-opening and it is horrific, but this is the life that they lived. I'm very, like, proud of Rosie for writing this, and it sounds like she's done a lot of work as an advocate. She has, and I think the thing that really warmed my heart the most is that uh, in the documentary, she talks about, ultimately, she I mean, she didn't have a relationship with her father afterwards, but... She ultimately forgave him because she needed to to move forward and be positive in her life and for her own children. So, you know, all of the kids really did their very best to break the cycle and give their own children really, really good lives for the most part. So anyways, I'm going to cry. And um, so I'm sorry, guys. I mean, it's very important. It's sad, but... It's important. It is. Yeah. I'm glad you brought the resources as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a really important um, addition to Sorry, guys. Major fucking member. I know. Thanks, Crystal. I know. (laughs) Crystal know the story before she suggested it to you? She just lost power. Oh. I guess we could wrap it up just you and me. Okay. Well, there's not much that can really help lighten the mood from that, and it feels a little bit performative just to talk about some astrology. I didn't realize in in writing all of this that it was going to be that degree of heavy hitter and really emotional um, storyline. But on July 27th, Mercury enters Leo. And again, Mercury is how we communicate with others. And Leo tends to be more confident and grand and um, sometimes playful and a little bit on that happy side. So the focus for this time for us is going to be able to communicate in a way that really gets to other people and influences them with our confidence and with our ability to kind of create that livelihood in other people around us. So we might not listen as well. That could be one of those pitfalls because of how fiery that Leo sign is. It has a lot to say. Yeah, just remember that you do need to keep your ears open as you are communicating more clearly during this time. And then in other news, on July 29th, Mars enters Virgo. I love Virgo. And so Mars again. (laughs) 
Mars is that planet that kind of tells us um, our plan of attack and how we want to go about certain things when we're figuring out problems and doing kind of more of our just problem-solving day-to-day activities. And in Virgo, what that means essentially is that we're really, really keyed in on the details of all of it. So if, if you're noticing that you're kind of getting stuck in the minutia because Virgo really, really likes Ooh, attention to detail, <laughs> um, just remember that the big picture matters too. So don't lose sight of that. Um, and realizing that the job well done can be one of your greatest incentives right now. But don't be too worried about the precision of everything, even though that might Stop be your forte. Stop talking to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty then. So I guess that's our astrology tidbit. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Meredith. Meredith lost power, so we're going to wrap this up without her. If you love this podcast slash hated the story, understood why it had to be told, you can reach out to us. We are on Twitter at True Trine, Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And we have a wonderful website so good you guys it's so it's good. at truecrimetrying.com check out those murder mittens oh send us more <laughs> murder mittens even if they don't have mittens send us your murder lizards i'm gonna add dova and renekton because dova lately has been doing these adorable poses He's that's just really very cute. monday mood <laughs> we're open to all kinds of uh if you got like a silly spaghetti send it to us yes danger noodles, danger noodles is not silly spaghetti <laughs> I couldn't remember what they call it in the memes. Okay. I guess we could talk about D.H. Lawrence. All right. We didn't do it this episode, but... Well, we did a little bit. But we don't need to feel ashamed about flirting with the Zodiac. The Zodiac is well worth flirting with. Unless it's the Zodiac killer. Boom. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.